We're in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. We had a nice journey through the Psalms together. I thought it was fitting. Uh, but as uh, the COVID uh, season is at least thawing out, we'll see what happens over the months to come. We thought it'd be good to jump back into the Gospel of Matthew, which Jeremy was able to lead us in last week. Jesus says this early on in the sermon. He looks at his disciples and he says these heavy words. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavy words. We can make a lot of observations right away in the Sermon on the Mount. We see the grace of the Beatitudes. Amazing display of how this works, right? He calls us to a righteousness with the glory and beauty of grace that Christ gives in his opening words of just, these are the people that enjoy God's favor, and it's those that are hungry and thirsty, who are weak, who are desperately in need of it. And so we hear grace from Christ, and yet we hear this heavy calling. If your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That should fall upon us with great weight. And we see that this application begins in this particular section in Matthew 5. If you want to just open there now, by all means, Matthew chapter 5. We see right after he says that, he begins to to speak to his disciples about what this exceeding, this surpassing righteousness looks like for those who are citizens of his kingdom. And he's immediately speaking to a particular righteousness as it relates to the Ten Commandments. We heard Ethan back in March, actually that would have been February if I remember correctly, Uh, talk about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But Jesus gets below the surface and gets at the anger in our hearts, which is actually murderous. Then we heard from uh, Alex and also Levi from Missio talking to us about adultery and lust, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But again, getting below the surface to a surpassing righteousness that the kingdom calls us to as it relates just to thoughts and intentions and desires of our heart and our mind. Now, today, we see Christ is calling his disciples to a surpassing righteousness in reference to our words, what we say, and how those words spoken have the ability and the privilege to either honor or bring dishonor to the Lord's name. And so we see in the passage today that Jesus is speaking to us in reference to two commandments, really. One, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And also, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. So the question becomes for us today. What does Jesus say to us 
his disciples about the surpassing righteousness required for his kingdom as it relates to the truthfulness of our words, the integrity of our hearts, and also the honoring of his name. Let's go to the word this morning. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the foot, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, so imagine we go back in time like 30-something years. She had a birthday Friday. I'm 41. Boom. That's bad. So 40 is like a milestone birthday, right? Everyone's like, awesome. And then 41, they're just like, that's kind of sad. You're just 41 now. That's it. I'm already looking at 50. But imagine we travel back in time, and we're in a cafeteria at Liverpool Elementary. And I'm there, and so is Chris, and so is Jason. These are the characters. And imagine a conversation going a little bit like this. Maisie, you ate my Twinkie. Twinkies were big back then. Have they gone bankrupt? Are people still eating Twinkies? Raise your hand if you had a Twinkie in the last year. We have Seth Fordham. Joe Crab? All right. Twinkies are still a thing. Twinkies are still a thing. Okay. Maisie, you ate my Twinkie. No, I did not. Chris told me you did. Witness. Chris told me you did. And Jason saw you near my locker. The evidence is piling up. He tells me, just admit it. I said, I promise, man, I did not eat your Twinkie. I don't believe you. I'm in a conundrum. He doesn't believe my word. He has witnesses against me. I know that I did not eat such a debased form of food called a Twinkie. I would never steal that. I would steal something much better than a Twinkie. So I know I haven't done it. The question becomes, in this moment of cafeteria conflict, how do I provide assurance to him that I did not eat his Twinkie? And then the ultimate mic drop. I'm mic too. That's, that's, a, that's a little something for you. The ultimate mic drop is this, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And at that moment, the conversation is what? Over. Right? I swore. I gave an oath. And that's what an oath does. In a silly conversation 30-something years ago, it, that's what an oath does. It, it brings a witness, and it brings credibility to uh, commitments or statements that you make. We do this 
often in casual conversations. We do this in legal contexts, right? We say things like, I swear, man. Or we may even say, I swear to God. Or we might say, I swear on the Bible. Have you ever heard that? Or I swear on the Holy Bible. Or if you really want to say something that adds a ton of assurance in the context of an Italian family, what do you say? I swear on my mother's grave. That's what we do. We say these things. Or the physical, verbal combination of the pinky swear, right? You understand when, when someone says, I swear on my mother's grave, or pinky swear, and, and like all oaths and swearing that takes place, that what happens is you, you say such a thing, and if you don't fulfill that, you are incurring a curse upon yourself. So to swear in your mother's grave and not follow through on that is to basically incur eternal damnation for your mother. It's pretty significant. Or if you don't do it and you pinky swore, they have the right now to cut off your finger. Because the idea is, is that if you swear and you don't follow through, then you are bringing a curse upon yourself. So when you swore or made an oath, you were bringing credibility, weight, and assurance to the conversation. That's what we see Jesus talking about here. Because the use of oaths and vows was common in Israel in their spiritual, personal, and legal context. Like They used oaths swearing constantly. You hear Jesus talk about this. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is not a direct quotation from the scriptures. It's actually a reference to really two scriptures. One is from Numbers chapter 30. I believe it will be up there for you to see. It says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You see that phraseology here in Matthew 5.33. But not only that, you see a connection to the use of vows and oaths that are connected to the use of the divine name, to the use of the name of the Lord. Leviticus 19.12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So there's a connection between oaths, swearing, and profaning or honoring the name of the Lord. I want you to see that connection. Jesus makes it. So that's what they did. They used oaths, they swore, uh, and Daniel Doriani points out that this, that they used oaths to call upon a person or an object as a witness that something was true or some commitment would be kept. It's binding yourself to a person or an object that would bring about uh, assurance because there was a witness. And so, as I said, failure to keep one's word would bring a curse upon you. And yet what's interesting is that Jesus goes on to say in 34, but I say to thee, yes, you've heard this, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Well, that seems bizarre, right? Is Jesus contradicting scripture here? 
Is he saying, yeah, that scripture says X, but I'm telling you something completely different? What's going on here? It seems a little bizarre. Well, as Jesus is calling his disciples to this surpassing righteousness, he is actually prohibiting the use of oaths, especially in the way that the Israelites, under the direction of the teachers of the law, began to use oaths. Jesus really is confronting rabbinical teaching in the Mishnah. It's not scripture. It's outside of the scriptures. These extra-biblical traditions that the Pharisees and the scribes would promote. It was a whole system of swearing and oath-taking that was established and taught by the rabbis where certain oaths were binding and other oaths were not binding. Here's a couple examples. So if you swear by Jerusalem, it's not binding. If you swear um, toward Jerusalem, it is binding. You see the subtle technicality there. If you swear by the temple, it's not binding. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, it was binding. Here's another example. If you swear by the altar of the sacrifice, it's not binding. If you swear by the gift on the altar of the sacrifice, it was binding. So they had this whole system that they, that they brought about of what was binding and non-binding. And they began to avoid the use of the divine name because they showed a, a, a superficial righteousness that said, oh, the, we don't want to say that name because, right, it's so holy. So they, 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 they steered away from binding themselves to the Lord and created a whole convoluted system that were binding and non-binding oaths. Here's the whole point. They were using oaths in such a way to add assurance to their words in conversation, but actually were there to hedge their bets. It was actually used to deceive. So instead of adding credibility and bringing truth to bear in conversations, which oaths were meant to do, they had a whole system that they used to use oaths in a non-binding way so that they had the ability to deceive people and not be held accountable to the holy name of the Lord. That's a lot to learn. <laughs> I learned a lot over this. But that's what you see Jesus confronting. They're making commitments with their fingers crossed. Maybe that's a, a good way to, to see what's going on. That's what Jesus is confronting. They're making commitments with their words. They're using oaths to do it to provide assurance, but they got their fingers crossed behind their backs because they're intending in that moment not to bear truth on a situation, but to actually deceive and to lie. And that would ultimately bring dishonor to the name of God. And again, avoiding the name of God would give them assurance that they're not accountable to the name of God. But as you see, Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You can't assume that in, in, in any particular oath that you make, that it is somehow uh, irrelevant to the divine name. As if God isn't a witness every single time you say anything to your motives, your words, the actual intentions of your heart. Look what he says. You can't take an oath by heaven. It's the throne of God. You can't take an oath 
by Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. It's God's city. You can't even take an oath on your head because unlike God, you cannot make one hair white or black. Bottom line, in the midst of this text, Christ is exposing the hidden deceit that is dishonoring his name. That's what he's doing. He's uncovering and exposing the hidden deceit that is behind all these oaths and swearing that is dishonoring his name. He's basically saying, I see what you're doing, Pharisees and scribes. You're manipulating people by saying things in a way that avoids accountability before me. And while it looks like you're trying to avoid profaning my name, you're actually doing the opposite. You're bringing dishonor to my name. And for you to assume that there's a realm in which my name and glory is irrelevant is absolutely absurd. Our deceit is always in plain view of the true God. What an amazing thing to think about. I'm a witness, he says, to every one of your thoughts. I'm a witness to your words. I'm a witness to your motives. I see your heart. I know you. You can't hide your lies from me. That's what Jesus is doing. He's calling his disciples to away from such practices to a surpassing righteousness in how they speak and to whom those words honor. I wonder if you're feeling the weight of that right now. I wonder if you don't feel the reality that Jesus sees and is exposing in this text the hidden deceit of your own heart. Even the subtlest of deceit. I mean, Jesus sees our lies. Jesus knows our half-truths. Jesus knows our secret motives. He knows our perversions, our distorting of the truth. He sees our exaggerations that seek to bring about our own benefit or our own approval. He sees our hypocrisy. He sees that we by nature, apart from a real redemptive work in our hearts, that we are a people of deceit. And he calls us to something different. Can we humbly confess that together? That deceit is a very real struggle in the human heart? Can we have an honest conversation about what drives that? What drives us in our deceit? Well, I think first of all, uh, we're driven by desire. So maybe we have deceit in our heart that is expressed in our words because there's something that we want. Or we something that we have that we don't want to lose. And so we lie, we deceive, we exaggerate, we manipulate in such a way to get something that we want or to keep something that we have. And we feel that we can use deceit in such a way to do that. It's about something that we want. I think about the college admission scandal that we've seen over the last year. They wanted something... And so they lied. 
And it would be easy for us to point the finger at such a scandal and not see it as a mirror in our own heart of the scandal that lies within. I think we also lie or we deceive because we're scared. Can we just humbly admit that we're scared? We're driven by our fears. What, self, uh, what fears fuel the lies that are in your life or even the deception in your heart? Is there something valuable that you're afraid to lose? Your job, your marriage. And if you were to be honest, you might lose it. If you were to come clean about something, you might lose something valuable to you. Is that why you deceive, why you lie, why you distort? Maybe it's because you're afraid of losing control of something, something that comforts you, fear of losing approval. If I admit this, then people won't like me anymore. I might lose that promotion. I might lose the respect of my children. Fear of losing security because our deceit often can be self-defense and we build up walls that we think protect us. And to become clean and honest could potentially bring all those walls of self-defense down. I think those things are true. We're scared. We're desirous. And that's what drives our deceit. But I think there's even something below that that drives those things. It's because I believe that we're deceived. A deceived people deceive. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. All the way back to the words of the enemy that whisper in our ear, did God really say that? I don't know. Did he? Actually, that's a good point. The deceiver showed up in the garden and planted seeds of falsehood, subtly questioned the truth of God, and subtly, slowly, deceptively led us into disobedience, which brought about our fall. Ultimately, the reason we're deceiving is because we have been deceived. We have believed a lie, and therefore we lie. We're deceived people. One of the most powerful examples of being deceived, therefore deceiving, recently uh, came out uh, in early part of this year with Harvey Weinstein. If you read his response to the 80-plus women that accused him and the two felony uh, charges that he was convicted of in reference to assaulting women, what did he say in his letter? He says, first of all, to all the women who testified, we may have different truths. You hear that a lot today, right? Uh, you have your truth and I have mine. Weinstein is deceived. But I have great remorse for you, he says. I have great remorse for all the men and women going through this crisis right now in our country. He was deceived, therefore he was deceiving. A deceitful man, as the record shows. We're deceived. 
Romans 3 tells us this, that in this section in Romans 3, prior to the one of the most beautiful passages that, that just are saturated with the good news about Christ, 3, 21 through 26, we see this, this long quotation of particular psalms that get at the universal condition of the human heart, that we are a sinful people. And how does he explain the sinfulness in humanity? He says in Romans 3, 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to what? Deceive. Just like the deceiver, we speak lies. We, we spread deceit. We literally follow the deceiver into his ways of distorting the truth. I don't know about you, but as I think about surpassing righteousness... And I think deeply about what Christ is exposing here. I think about my own heart. I feel a desperate need for Christ. And the wonderful news is, is that while he is exposing our deceit, the reality of the gospel tells us that he has provided all that is necessary to put the truth in us, right? The truth comes to us in the public preaching of the gospel. We hear about Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of what? Truth. The gospel of your salvation. And believed in him. The text says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The truth came to us in the preaching of the gospel. Someone say amen to that today. That in the midst of our deception, in the midst of being deceived, the truth of the gospel came to us as a work of God about the reality of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the very way in which we come to know the Father and are saved, that word was preached to us. It was a true word that took root in our hearts. It came to us, and then it came in us. Jesus tells us that the truth is placed in us by the Spirit of truth. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you see the wonderful work of the gospel? That when we see Christ for all that he is, and we trust in his finished work, that the God of truth gives us the spirit of truth that now lives inside of us and places the truth that we need, the cure for all of our deception in the depth of our soul. The Lord of heaven takes root and lives and dwells within us. And there's truth now. And as a response to that, Ephesians 4.15 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, right? Falsehood, the truth's been placed in us. Now we have the power to put away falsehood. To say, so long, sucker, to deceit. And now, we are empowered by the Spirit, as it says, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. A community of people known as the Church of Jesus Christ that are built on the truth. The truth lives in us and dwells within us. And now, what comes into us comes out of us. I think that's a massive thing to think about today. That what comes out of our mouth 
is what is in our hearts. And that's what the gospel does. If you believe in Christ, the truth is in us, and now the truth comes out of us. And that's what Christ calls us to. He calls us and his disciples to an honesty that honors his name. I want you, if you miss everything today, get that. That citizens of the kingdom, the disciples of Jesus, they are called and empowered to an honesty that honors his name. He says at verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Enough of the convoluted systems. Enough of the binding and non-binding things. Just let it be simple. Say yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's getting at where does our statements come from? It comes from within. It comes from our heart. And he's calling his disciples to speak the truth out of the integrity of their hearts. That's the call on Christ's disciples. If you know Christ, if you trust in Christ, and if you follow Christ, we are truth tellers. Because we've received it. It's transformed us. Falsehood has been put away. And now, with our words, we don't deceive and thus dishonor the name. No, we speak the truth in a way that brings the glory and honor that the name of Christ deserves. What a privilege we have as ambassadors in this world to speak the truth. In a day and age that is so confused about the truth, that wants to, be, to make a point more than actually discover the truth, we can be a blessing. We can be a representative of the truth of the word of God by speaking honestly in such a way to bring honor to the name of Jesus Christ. It's not just about avoiding lies. Because I hear all the time, I say it like it is. I just tell you like it is. I tell you the truth. Yes, but again, truth is not a bat to beat people over the head with. No, it's, it's speaking the truth in such a way that brings honor and glory to the name of Christ, right? Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in what? Love, 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 integrity of heart, love for neighbor, love for God. Speak the truth in such a way to bring honor to his name. And so we pray as Renovation Church that the truth of Christ would be in us in such a way that the truth of Christ would come out of us. We see it right there on the wall. Right? This is a core value of Renovation Church. Truth. Because the word of God is truth, it is the foundation on which we build our lives. And because we have a foundation like that, we're truth speakers. We speak the truth in such a way that brings honor to the name of of Christ. I don't know about you, but the more I thought about this, I mean, my initial thought on this was, I don't lie. I mean, I'm, I'm not a liar. But man, sometimes I say true things that don't really honor Christ. Sometimes there's subtleties of deceit that I don't even understand in my own heart. Maybe it's not so overt for you today. 
this surpassing righteousness that Christ calls you to. But maybe it's a moment like the psalmist where you call on God to search out your heart today. Well, I don't lie. It's not just about that. Well, I don't take oaths. I never swear on anything. That's not the point here. I mean, it's the point. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. But again, it's, a, it's deeper. It's based on the name, the character, the essence of God, that he is true, and his people bear witness to that in the world. This is about truth and bringing honor to his name in the way that we speak and talk and use the very words that God gives to us. So maybe today you don't really know how deep this deceit is in you. Pray like the psalmist. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me to the way everlasting. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. But don't assume, oh, I'm good. I never swear. I never take oaths. Nope. Pray to God to search your heart. And as the Lord, by his spirit, uncovers these things, pray like the psalmist in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. Because again, what comes out is from within. Created me a clean heart. Clean hearts, words that honor. True words that honor. Created me a clean heart. That's my prayer. As I think about the deceit in my own soul that I can't even understand the depths of it. I think we, we go to God and we pray that he would sanctify us. Because again, although falsehood has been removed because the spirit of truth lives in us, there's this ongoing process, right? The surpassing righteousness that Jesus calls us to is not something that he, you know, it, it, we, it just happens overnight. This is a process. It's a lifelong process. We sang about someday, right? We'll see him. When he appears, we shall be like him. We talked about that in January. But this is a process that over time, Christ by his spirit is continuing to rip out and weed out falsehood in our lives. And we ask him, sanctify us. Or maybe as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And I love this prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. I think he's praying to be sanctified there in a different way. He's saying, yes, inside my heart there's divided things. I, in this moment I have, I have some, some very real truth and I've got some falsehood and I've got some, some pure motives and I've got selfishness. I mean, is it just me or is, do I feel like my whole life is a mixture of, of, of living into me being a saint and also still struggling with sin? That my motives when I serve are I want to bring glory to God. But if I'm really honest, there's still a residue of I want the glory. That in my words, there's truth. All praise and honor be to his name. But sometimes there's subtle deceit that I don't really understand. It's a mixture. And so what he's praying here for is, yes, I recognize my heart is divided. Unite it. He's saying bring some integrity. That there's the slow process weeding out of falsehood you follow me and it's just the truth sanctify me in the truth unite my heart to fear your name and then pray god use me use me use me to bear witness to the truth of christ 
in all that I do, but please, in all that I say. Christ is calling us to an honesty that honors his name. I want you to see that today. Some of you may be living in the despair and in the, the sla- enslavement of deceit right now. Another story in my own life that goes back maybe not 30 plus years, but pretty close. I think it was like 10, 11, 12. I had a lot of freedom as a kid. Like, you can ride your bike, go see your friends, do whatever you want to do. Just here's the rule. Don't cross Route 57 and don't cross 370. If you know anything about the village of Liverpool, you'll know that 57 goes right through the heart and 370 goes along the lake. And as long as I stayed in that triangle between the thruway and 57 and 370, I could just basically ride my bike all around and come back six hours later. I mean, that, that was my childhood, okay? My kids, don't leave my yard. Anyway. Um, so one day, a friend of mine, Paul, who lived way past Hyde, said, come on over. I'm like, bro, I can't. He's like, no, come on over. We're going to you know, play a little bit, have a little fun. I said, Ma, can you bring me over to Paul's house? No, I can't bring you to Paul's house today. Started riding my bike. Cross 57. I'm 11. Cross Vine Street. If you know the village of Liverpool, these are some busy streets for an 11-year-old. Make my way down around Liverpool Lumber, right across the railroad tracks now. Hides is on my right. I make my way through the apartment complexes, and I'm on Sunflower Drive through the path. I made it to Paul's house, hung out. We had a blast all the way home. I feel the weight of what am I going to say. I sit down at the dinner table. My father says, what'd you do today? Uh, I went to Matt Boak's house. My dad's like, he doesn't even like Matt. He's thinking to himself, Matt who? Yeah, and then I went to Joe's house, which is next door. Oh, great. And then the weight of deceit and the conviction of the Spirit just came over me. And I'm like shaking inside because I know I've lied to my parents. And then all of a sudden, I surrendered. Right? I surrendered. I said, and in tears. And me being dramatic and emotional, oh, I'm so sorry. I lied. I went all the way to Paul's house. I crossed 57. I crossed Vine Street. I went all the way past Tides. And I've been at Paul's all day. I'm so sorry. And I think my dad was like laughing at me. (laughs) But you know what? It was in that moment, in in the heart of a young boy, I felt the freedom And the truth of this, right? You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I was in deep trouble. But I was so free. And I wonder if some of you feel like you're hiding in your deceit today, in your marriage, at work. And it's time to just throw your hands up. And stop carrying the weight of deceit. Stop pretending and just confess and come clean 
and tell the truth in such a way that brings honor and glory to God today. I'm telling you right now, that's a small, silly little example, but it's true for every single one of us. We don't need to hold on to the deceit anymore. Christ calls us to something so much better, so much surpassing righteousness. He calls us to an honesty that honors his name and brings freedom to our lives. Amen? He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? May the truth of Christ be in us in such a way that the truth of Christ comes out of us. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise and glory that is due your name. We confess to you the deceit of our hearts. Our half-truths, our lies, our exaggerations. We praise you that you saw this and you sent your son Jesus into the world to take upon his shoulders our sin and bring the truth in such a way to put it into our hearts by the Spirit. I pray that if there's anybody here today that has believed the lie that you don't even exist, let alone our truth, We pray that they would see you for all that you are and trust in you. See that your name is Jesus saves, Yahweh saves. And they can turn to you and trust in you for salvation from these things. I pray for every believer here that you would weed out falsehood, that you would unite their heart to fear your name, that you would motivate them to bear witness to the truth, to be a witness in the world to confess their sins and their lies and their deception in such a way to bring about true freedom and joy in in their lives. We pray this for the glory of your name, the one who is truth. Lord, we pray as well for our partner church today. Dr. Miller in North Syracuse Baptist Church, we pray that the truth of your word would be preached there, that your name would be hallowed there, that you would build your people, you would strengthen them for the service that you've called them to. We pray that you would sustain them through this difficult season. I believe they're reopening the day. Pray that you give them joy in that, that they would hear and treasure the singing and the praying and the preaching of your word, your word that is truth. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And even as we're not able to give this morning and yet recognizing that your faithfulness and your grace has been on display in the lives of your people. We pray that you would continue to provide for this congregation to be faithful witnesses. Lord, praise you for your grace and generosity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.